Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. so well. It's great to be able to bring you the word this morning. And um, I wanted to, to quickly, be, I wanted to begin our time together just talking a little bit about one of my experiences that we've had in our life group over the last uh, couple of weeks. We've been doing, a, so if you're not familiar with what a life group is, it's an opportunity to gather on a regular basis and to open God's word, explore some scripture, uh, have a discussion about it, share some food, pray together. And just basically spend some time building authentic community. And so I've got a life group that, uh, that we run at my place on a Thursday night, which is a whole stack of fun. And we've been doing a study uh, over the last few weeks called, I Said This, You Heard That. I Said This, You Heard That. And it's talking about temperaments. I might, we'll probably, I might preach about it sometime. Uh, but basically, it's looking at the way that we are wired as, uh, as human beings and the temperaments that we have that help us or hinder us from hearing or communicating with one another. And to not go into it in too much detail, there's four temperaments. We each have one of those temperaments. We're born with it. It's quite separate to the, our personality, which is a thing that shape, is shaped by our experiences and our formation through life. Um, and so the temperaments, I discovered that I am what they call a phlegmatic temperament. It's green. And phlegmatic, yes, does sound like phlegm. Um, no, I don't take that personally. But um, it's a, from an ancient Greek word, actually. That's where the temperament stuff comes from. But basically, one of the key indicators of a phlegmatic person, which I am, and Angus, Angus is one as well. He's in that Molaf group. And I'm sure many of you are. One of the key indicators of a phlegmatic person is that they really dislike conflict. Like, really dislike conflict. One of our key markers is harmony, peace. Having to or wanting to or hoping to see the world around us in such a way or, or in, in the environment be such a way that it's just harmonious and peaceful. And now as a parent with two young daughters at home, you can imagine how Often it is harmonious and peaceful in our life, but doesn't change my wiring, and I've discovered that it's life-giving for me to have a harmonious and peaceful environment. And so, to be honest, like even though that's my wiring, I think we could often we could all agree that harmony and peace in our relationships is something that we all aspire to, whether it's how we're wired necessarily to thrive in the world or whether it's not. Because who loves conflict? I'm so glad that I didn't see any hands come up right then and there because it'd be like, all right, and I'm just going to note that one. We'll encounter something about them in the church life shortly. No, to be honest, none of us actually like conflict. If we do, there's some sort of, well, I won't, I won't call anyone any names, but I think if you really, really love conflict, I think there's something wrong with you. I'll be real. But um, so we just don't like conflict that much. 
But so when, when I look back over my life and the various conflicts that have happened relationally in my life, in the different relationships across all of my experiences, and you might be able to relate to this, most of the time, in fact, pretty much every time, a conflict arises when the person that you're arguing with or the person that you're in relational conflict with sees something a certain way, and then I see things the right way. Can anyone relate to this? It pretty much conflict always seems to arise when someone has an opinion about something that clashes with the truth, which is my opinion about something. Is this not correct? Can anyone relate to this experience? Absolutely. If you're not raising your hand, you, you're not listening, because it's absolutely true. And for the life of me, being someone who's passionate about seeing peace and harmony reign in relationships, for the life of me, I couldn't understand why they could not see things the way that I saw them. I couldn't understand why relationship issues weren't getting resolved particularly well, when if all they needed to do was see things the way that I saw them, if I could just communicate clearly enough to them the truth, then they would see it and do what I want, or see things how I see them. Anyone relate to that as a reality? Absolutely. If only they saw things my way, everything would be okay. And so, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the question that I know is on everyone's minds in a whole bunch of different ways. What's wrong with these people? You excited about it? Four weeks talking about the dysfunction of everyone else so that we can be right. The title of our new series is quite simply called, How to Get People to See Things Your Way. We're going to look at some key things across the life of it, because once they see things your way, everything will be okay. Well, isn't that narcissistic indeed? Look at the little smug little boy on that picture. Because I believe this, this series can be applied to every area of your life, from that challenging teenager that doesn't do what you want, to that unhelpful mother-in-law that keeps having an opinion about the way that you're doing life or raising your kids or whatever, or maybe it's your spouse or a relative that you've fallen out with, and if only they saw things your way, then everything would be fine. So over these next few weeks, we're going to look at that. And I want to be upfront with you that there's going to be four effective tools that we're going to look at, one each week over the next four weeks to help us explore this idea. It's called the C4 approach to relational management. Now, the fact that C4 is a commonly known plastic explosive is just purely coincidental in this situation. So I want you to, I'm going to share with you quickly the C4 approach to relational management. Here it is. And the C4 approach has four C's in it. They are, should be on the screen, convince, convict, coerce, and control. Convince, convict, convict, coerce, and control. And look, in your C4 version, there might be other C words, but my, you know, thesaurus and vocabulary is limited, and so that was the C words that I could come up with that shaped this specifically. And so we're going to look at each of these over the next few weeks. And if you doubt the effectiveness of these four tools for managing relationships, just think how effective that these strategies have been in uniting our nation politically. I don't think you guys think I'm serious, do you? But I do have one, one word of warning. 
don't share these goals or th- these, don't share this approach with anyone in your life that you want to use these on. Don't do it. Just don't. Because ultimately that will undermine your strategy of getting them to see things your way. Because once they realize these four things, they're going to use them on you. And before you know it, you'll turn around and suddenly you're seeing things their way. And we just can't have that now, can we? Because after all, you and I, we respond really, really well when someone else tries to convince us, to convict us, coerce or control us, don't we? No, of course we don't. Of course we don't. In fact, the truth is, and if you, if you, just in case you were unclear, that was being facetious, now we get on with the real sermon. Does that sound good? Painting the picture, and I'll explain to you why this matters, is because, in, in fact, we naturally resist all four of these things. There's something in us that pushes back on anyone that would try and coerce us, try and convince us, convict us, control us in all sorts of ways. But what I find really interesting is when I look back at the conflict situations in my own past and the conflicts that I see within the lives of people in in our church community as as a pastor, because believe it or not, Christians argue about stuff. I don't know if you ever realized that before, but we do. When I mediate things as a pastor, which is an absolute privilege, by the way, um, these are often the tools, these are often the tools that we first look to, that we first reach for during times of conflict, during times of frustration, during times of unmet expectations, when there's a gap in the relationship and someone doesn't see things the way that we do. If we're honest, and if I look back on my past and from what I see, these are the things that you and I default to reaching towards, whether we realize it or not, for managing the conflict and the brokenness and the dysfunction, the unmet expectations that we have in our relationships. And they never help. They never help. And more often than not, they make things worse. So over the next few weeks, what we're actually going to be talking about is this, reassembly required, a beginner's guide to repairing broken relationships. That's what the series is really called. Now, relationships are like a great many things in our life, and there's something that we use every single day, but relationships, like many other things that we use every single day, we don't need to know how they work to benefit from using them. We don't need to understand how or why a relationship works to use it. But the thing about it is, and the tension that we're going to sort of delve into a little bit over our next four weeks, is if we don't know how and why the relationship is working, when it breaks, we have no idea how to fix it. When we don't know why something works, When it breaks, we have no idea how to fix it. And this is true of a whole bunch of other things. So you think about your car. Most of us hope to or have previously or do currently drive a car, right? How many people know exactly how that car works? A few of the sort of the wise mechanics are like, yep, I do, Josh. And that's fine. You can do that. We'll get to a few other illustrations in a minute and see how good you are. 
Yeah, how many of us know how a, a car actually works to the point that when it breaks, you know how to fix it? I don't, yet I drive one every single day. What about a computer? See, I told you I'd get you. What about a computer? Who knows how and why a computer actually works? I see that hand. I'm going to come and see you afterwards just with all the, you know. Because most of us have no idea. And so when a computer breaks, we have no idea how to fix it. This actually happened during the week in the church office this week. We have a church office where there's a bunch of church volunteers and um, our admin folks and, and our op shop coordinator um, and also our, our finance team where they all sort of operate out of that office and I've, I'm in the office next door. And um, during the last sort of week and a half, two weeks, we've moved their office to a different location. Uh, so it's closer to my office, which is fun because we like hanging out together. And, and, um, and, but in the process of moving that office, we just sort of unplugged all the cables to all the computers and then moved the network guys are like, I see where, I see where this is going. Then we just plugged everything in to the cables that had been run already up to the top of, of, of into the new office. We just plugged all the, compu- the cables back into the computers and then turned them on. And then we clicked print to send things to our, our excuse me, <coughs> to our networked printer. And nothing happened. And now, as I, um, as I, most sort of computer tech guys can relate, the first thing that I did was what every computer tech tells you to do, which is turn it off and on again. Absolutely. And nothing happened. Still, nothing happened. Now, I'm a millennial, which is called Generation Y, and so there's a whole bunch of different de- de- definitions going around about what millennial means, but functionally, it's that I grew up with a computer in the home. That's the definition. So if you grew up with a computer in your home during your schooling years, then you count as a millennial uh, up until a certain point, and then, um, then you move on to Gen Z. Um, and so what that means about my generation is that we're not necessarily tech savvy, because that's a skill set, but we are non-tech an- uh, non-anxious when it comes to tech. So it's not that we are tech savvy necessarily, but we're just not afraid to press buttons, basically. And so we know how to use technical devices intuitively. But even though I know how to use pretty much any computer that I sit down in front of, except Macs, I have no idea how a Mac works, an Apple Mac, but that's life. Even though I intuitively know how to use it, I have no idea how it works, which means when it breaks, my capacity to help fix the problem, and this, exact, this happened on, the, on Wednesday when this problem occurred, my capa- everyone looks to me because you're like, Josh, you, you just, you know, you, you did, didn't you, Chris? She, she turned around, she's like, Josh, help, and I'm like, um, and so I went and sit down and pressed after switching it off and on again, press the troubleshoot button. Because that's the limit. And the computer tech guys are like, that's not going to help. Because the limit of my experience, because I don't understand how it works, was to press the troubleshoot button. And as many of you would know that have ever pressed the Windows troubleshoot button, it's about as often as helpful as a, as a screen door on a submarine, right? It just doesn't help. 
So if we don't, my point is this, if we don't know how or why something is working, when it breaks, we have no idea how to fix it. And this is absolutely true for our relationships. And when they break, we hit the troubleshoot button, the built-in troubleshoot button that exists within each of us. And we find ourselves very quickly moving to our C4 approach to relationship management or some version of it. And most of the time, we have no idea that we're doing it. And you might say, Josh, well, I don't coerce people. I, I, you know, I'm a pretty nice sort of person. Well, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of my life to see if they relate to you. Here's, something that, here's a line that I've used in the past here in this church. I'm sorry if what I said offended you. Anyone ever said that? I'm sorry if what I said offended you. Seems pretty harmless, right? Until you're on the receiving end of that and you've been offended. How do you hear that? How do we hear, I'm sorry if what I said offended you? Translation, you're being overly sensitive. What I said wouldn't have offended most people. And so, it's probably about, it's prob- this, this problem is on you, not on me. I'm sorry if I offended you. Let's try another one. I said I was sorry. Why are you still upset? Husbands in the room, hands up, thanks. Translation, I've done my part. You should be fine now. And since you're not fine, there's something wrong with you. We all default in some form to this C4 explosive idea of relationship management. And the reason that we have such a problem with managing broken relationships is reassembling a broken relationship is a learned skill. It's something that we have to develop. It's something that we innately actually don't really know how to do. And the reason is many of us weren't taught it weren't taught how to repair relationships. It wasn't modeled well for us growing up. And so, what do we do? What do we do? How do we move forward in this? What I find really interesting is that this is not a 21st century problem. And the relational issues have been going on for as long as people have been around. And I want to take us with the time we've got left, to a passage of Scripture that helps us explore this dynamic a little bit. And I think, and point us in what I think is a helpful direction towards where we're going to go for the rest of this series. And a helpful direction in what I think is the first step in repairing broken relationships. Because remember, this is a beginner's guide. This is not a counseling appointment. And I don't ever want to be your counselor because I'm not a counselor. But instead, what I can do is offer principles that are helpful. And because this is a beginner's guide, this is a first step in the right direction. And I believe that this is helpful for those of you who are followers of Jesus because this is a teaching from Scripture. But I believe this is wisdom in a general sense. And so I believe whether you're a follower of Jesus or not here this morning, I believe this is helpful or this could be helpful for you. So we're headed to a passage of Scripture called Philippians chapter 2. And Philippians 
to give you some context, the Apostle Paul, who was um, responsible for planting uh, many, many churches across the Mediterranean Rim in the first century, planted a church or was responsible for planting a church in Philippi, which was a, a, a regional uh, trade center in the, in the um, Roman Empire. And he writes a letter to the church in Philippi. And the reason he writes this, or the reason this comes up, is scholars believe that they were trying to navigate relationship breakdowns within the life of the church. And Paul writes to them with some advice. And we pick up in chapter 2, verse 3. It should be on the screen. You can follow along. If you've got a Bible with you, you can, you can open up to it as well. So, the context being restoring and helping people live in unity. So, relationships is the focus. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Right up there, in the very beginning, in the opening statement of what it is he wants to share with us, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, let's just pause and look over at our C4 relationship management tools. We've got convict, coerce, and a few others. Control, convince. I wonder, all of them are designed to help someone come to our way of thinking. And so what's the central focus of those things? Us. It's us. So with the, with the default in mind of the way that, that we are wired to try and reach for helping in a relationship, we realize that it's centered upon us. And the very beginning, Paul writes, now I don't think he had the C4 approach on hand at the time, but human behavior hasn't changed, not really. Just because we've got screens and devices and phones and cars and planes and all that sort of stuff doesn't mean we've changed that much. So the fact that he's writing about this suggests that it's a problem that needed to be solved. Simple as that. So he says, do nothing then out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of others. Paul's call to us is to look at the interests of others over our own self-interests, valuing others above ourselves. Paul offers that to navigate relational breakdown effectively, what we actually need to do is not consider how we can get them to see our way, but is actually to consider what their needs are to begin with. What is it that they actually need? What is it that they actually want? What is it that they are actually hoping for? What if we were to shape our relational engagements with them as a priority rather than ourselves? Paul suggests that's exactly where we need to begin. But each of you, looking to the interests of others. Now, this could be really easy to suggest, or really easy to say, in many ways. But one of the things that I thought was actually super challenging to me, that sort of came to me about this idea, 
was that, okay, so let's just not be manipulative and, and straight and, and not coerce people and not try and control in our relationships. That seems pretty straightforward, right? But then I got challenged about something which I had never seen before in this idea of relationship engagement and re- managing broken relationships. And it was quite simply this, that reconciliation and my desire for reconciliation is actually something that, I, that is about me. Let me explain that a little bit further. Unlike many things that break, into a, that break in our life, like a, a vase or a, or a whatever, where you've got all the pieces and you can glue it back together. When it comes to a relationship, trying to reconcile it, trying to put it back together, you don't have all the pieces when it comes to that relationship, do you? Because there's another person involved, right? And that other person has independent will. That other person has desires, hopes, dreams, feelings of their very own. And so when we enter a conflict resolution moment with reconciliation as the primary goal, we're actually putting expectations, our expectations, upon the other person that they are going to come to the table and do their part. So we know that when we do our part and they do their part, then everything will be reconciled, and that's our expectation. And I, but I do want to ask you this question. When was the last time an adult responded well to you when you expected them to do something that you'd never agreed on? Do we as adults like being pushed around? Do we as adults like having goals set for us by someone else that isn't our personal trainer? No, I don't. We tend to just cross our arms and listen and not offer anything else because we're Christians and we don't want to say anything rude. When someone else sets objectives for us, we don't respond super well. And so when it, actually when it comes to relationship management, this is super counterintuitive. But hear me clearly. Is that making reconciliation the goal in repairing a broken relationship actually is placing your expectations of someone else's behavior and your expectations around someone else's response to your behavior, it actually puts your expectations on them. And it's not going to work because they're an independent person that you can't control. And so when the Apostle Paul writes, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, of reconciling the relationship. Not looking as making that the highest priority, but instead considering the interests of others. Friends, I wonder sometimes that even if we don't consider our relational approach to be super dysfunctional, sometimes our desire, and I've been guilty of this, our desire to have the the relationship reconciled actually ends up doing damage. Why? Because we're placing expectations on another person to come to the table when they might not be ready. And that makes the conflict resolution process still about us. And Paul says, it's not about you. It's not about you. And so what do we do then? 
If relationship, if, sorry, if reconciliation is not the goal, what is the goal? Well, to be honest, I think the goal is like that, but it's not the same. Our goal is no regrets. Our goal ought not be reconciliation on the front end. Our goal is ought to be no regrets, with reconciliation as the hope. Because we know we can't set a goal for someone else, but we can set a goal for ourselves. And so when it comes to relationships, by putting someone else's thoughts in the front of your mind, your behavior becomes about doing what you can do and allowing them to do what they can do. It fits quite well in our culture statement of like, you do you. Because people will do them and you'll do you and everyone works out and whatever. But this aligns well with that because it takes responsibility for the things that we can do and gives them the freedom to do what it is that they can do. And hopefully, the two th- the two. The two agendas, the two intentionalities line up and come to a point where the relationship is reconciled. But when we make our approach to relationship reconciliation about them more than it is about us, then we don't place the expectation. Instead, we just meet them where they are and see what it is that they want to do. So the aim is no regrets, to do what all that we can do. And then Paul paints the best possible picture for us of what this looks like from verse 5 onwards. And he says, in your relationships, tick, that's what we're talking about, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God. So Jesus, in very nature fully God, fully human, didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Wasn't content to just sit up there and just watch humanity in its brokenness suffer. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So the the Son of God being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, so becoming human, fully God, fully human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In this, Paul presents Jesus as the ultimate example of the process of reconciliation, the ultimate example. He presents Jesus as the Son of God, as the one sitting on at the right hand of the Father in heaven with God, whatever that means to you. Jesus, not human, becomes human, lowers himself to be like humanity because God is perfect and we are not. Humanity is part of creation, and God is above creation. So for God to enter His creation was no small cost. So Jesus became a servant. And Paul writes, He became a servant to bridge the gap between us and God. Became a servant to ultimately give His life. So that we could find forgiveness in God's sight. And be united back into relationship with God. So we call that in fancy church language, we call that atonement. 
of sin. That's the, because Scripture tells us the, the wages of sin is, is death. The wage of selfishness in our life is, is death and separation from God. But, but the gift of God is eternal life, eternal reconciliation, eternal benefit through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gift. That's what Jesus came to achieve for us. And so Jesus, not being content with the brokenness of the relationship between us and God, moved our direction for our sake, moved our direction, took a humble stance, considered what it is that we require, and moved closer to us to make it possible. He did all that He could do and left the rest up to us. And so, friends, I believe that for us to begin repairing the broken relationships in our life, we need to begin moving in the direction of those that we want to reconcile with, without expectation. To begin repairing broken relationships, we need to move in their direction without expectation. Because they're their own people, and they get to decide. Just in the same way that you and I get to decide whether we accept Jesus' gift for us or not. We're free to choose. Humanity always has been free to choose because it's a gift and we can take it or reject it. And many people across all, in fact, every person across all of creation and across all of time has either accepted or rejected the gifts of God. You you included. But the tension that we find here, and I, I get it, The tension that we find as we explore this idea is that we live in a world of suspicion. Because you say, Josh, okay, it's fine that I'm going to move closer to them. I'm going to do all that I can do to help repair this relationship without expecting them to do anything else. So what if they just take advantage of my kindness? Anyone ever felt that in in reconciling? What if they take advantage of my kindness? And we live in a world of suspicion. German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer writes it this way. And how cynical is this worldview, by the way? To become reconciled to a friend with whom you have broken is a form of weakness. And you pay the penalty for it or of it when he or she takes the first opportunity of doing precisely the very thing which brought about the breach in the first place. If we're honest, has anyone ever felt like this? Like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to forgive him. It's going to hurt me again. And when we do, sometimes they do. But I've got a question for you. What's not, what, well, my question really is this. Did Jesus wait to see how you would respond before he gave his life for you? Or did he meet you where you are and say, your choice? Friends, the risk 
is always worth it. The risk of moving towards is always worth it. Because you never know what might happen. And what I find, Arthur, a German philosopher at the moment, what he calls weakness, Scripture calls strength. And that's the paradox that we find in, in the rhythm of God, in the paradox we find in the Gospels, is that, that God consistently and reliably uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Time and time again, what we think is weakness as far as humanity is concerned, God uses as strength. What we think is, is foolishness, God ultimately uses as wisdom. How interesting that the truth and the power of the gospel is that Jesus used weakness, Jesus used death to shame the strength of the enemy and overcome death forever. Jesus didn't let our likelihood of breaking the relationship deter him from moving in our direction. And friends, we are called to do the same. So where does this land for you in your life? It's, all, it's the question. It's always going to be the question. Where does this land for you in your life? I'm going to invite, can I invite the band back up as I finish? Is there a relationship in your life Is there a relationship in your life where you need to begin moving towards reconciliation but without expectation? Without any sense of control over how they might respond, is there a relationship you need to move closer to? Knowing that it might cost you and they might not respond. And I believe this is helpful whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, because you'll be surprised how much more helpful this posture is than the C4 relationship management approach. And so, I know when I ask you that question, is there someone, is there a relationship, one pops to mind. It does. Like if you genuinely cannot find a relationship that is broken in your life, that's awesome. But life is messy. And it might be one you'd actually forgotten about. And so I want to I create a moment of stillness. And I know that for most of us in our life, we don't, we're not still that often. There's always something to do. So I'm going to give you permission to stop just for a couple of minutes and listen to your heart and to listen to God. Oh, I want you to close your eyes to center yourself and to focus for a moment. Who is a person that you need to move towards? And if you've got that picture of that person in your mind, I want you to ask yourself, what is stopping me from trying? Really? What is stopping me from trying? Really? So let's take a moment in the stillness. See what it is God wants to say to you in this moment. And then I'll come back and join you and we'll pray to close. So take a moment.
loving God in the stillness. It's hard to escape. It's hard to escape the, the brokenness of our journey. It's hard to escape the feelings of guilt or regret or shame. that might exist when we think of the relationships that we just wish we'd done it differently. But Lord, in this moment, by your Spirit, we thank you for the way you have spoken into our heart, given us a sense of what it is that we ought to do with this. pray you give us the courage to take a step closer to someone whom we love, otherwise we wouldn't care about their relationship either way. But someone that we love. But we need to rebuild the relationship. Help us to take a step closer without expectation of any response. But trusting in your power to work in a human heart and to help us see the love and the truth, the peace and the joy that's on the other side of repairing these relationships. And Lord, for some here who might be joining us elsewhere as well, the biggest relationship we need to repair is our one with you. We've never thought about it. We've never seen the need. We just thought that it looked a whole lot different to exactly what it is that you're offering. So loving God, I pray that you would help us accept afresh or maybe for the first time the gift of reconciliation you give to us. That you've done all that is required for us to be in relationship with you. So loving God, we we hand this time over to you. Give us the courage to know what to do with what we've heard. The grace to receive the truth into our heart. give us a way to move forward, to see relationships restored in our life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I can't wait for you to join us next week for, as we continue our series, how to get people to see things your way. Oh, sorry, that was, uh, no, as we continue our series next week, reassembly.